back in chapter 9, when Herod heard about the things that Jesus was doing, he thought, oh, um, I cut John the Baptist's head off. Perhaps John's been raised to life and that's why these miracles are happening. Or perhaps perhaps he's Elijah or perhaps he's one of the prophets. And he badly wanted to see Jesus for himself. But, but you know, you can't have a, a king going out and chasing around the countryside looking for, for some prophet to see, to see if he can see a miracle. It just, that's not the way it works. But he wanted to see Jesus for himself. Um, like, like many skeptics and unbelievers before and since, he, he, th- he th- thought, if I can just see a miracle, well, then I might believe. Well, now's his chance. Here's Jesus standing right in front of him. But it's a, he is hugely disappointed. I mean, if we put ourselves in, in Herod's shoes for a minute, for months people have been, been, been telling him all about this things that Jesus has been doing. I mean, even the dead being raised to life. How would you not want to see those things for yourself? But imagine your disappointment when finally here you have the man standing in front of you. And that's all he does. He says and he does nothing. You would think really that even Jesus' own friends must have been disappointed with the way he defended himself at his trial. Imagine for a minute that you're a, you're a passionate member of a political party. And it's a party that hasn't been in government for 20 years, 30 years even, always languishing in the opinion polls, sort of in the 20% rather than up around 50, which is what you need it to be. And what's wor- more is it worse is it's, getting, it's not getting any better, it's getting worse and worse. But then a new man comes along who's your new leader, and he is just so good. Every time the, the press question him, they go away amazed at his answers. And everything he does, people are, people are impressed. And they think, wow, maybe this is, the, this is what we've been waiting for. This is a, a politician we can trust. This is a politician we can really believe in. And so as time goes on, the opinion poll figures increase and up in the 30s and then the 40s and, and, and into the 50s even where... Now it's starting to look likely we might win the election. Our man will do it for us. And even up to into the 60s where it's just going to be a, a walk in the park and the, the opposition's going to be left with almost no seats left in the, in the parliament. And so with, with anticipation, you wait for election day. But a week before the election, there's the big debate with his opponent. Your man is going to, to debate his, his main opponent. And you know this is going to be, you're going to enjoy this. This is a walk in the park. But then there he is on national television, millions of viewers. And the man who's conducting the debate asks him questions and all he does is look at his feet and say nothing. He won't answer any questions. He won't say anything. Well... The election comes a week after and you're back in the, in the opposition yet again. That's what it would, must have been like 
for Herod and in some ways for Jesus following. Herod is disgusted and he pours his anger out on Jesus. We can only imagine what verse 11 means there when it says they treated him with contempt and mocked him. In the end, Herod mockingly dresses him as a king and sends him back to Pilate. And so both, both rulers had made fun of Jesus, but they both agreed that he was innocent of the charges that the Jews were bringing against him. Pilate calls the Jewish leaders back and tells them bluntly, neither I nor Herod can find any reason at all to crucify this man, so I'll give him a good whipping and let him go. But Jesus' enemies, they can smell blood and they're not going to get let him go that easily. They go down the road that so many protesters follow. They stir up the mob. They stir up the crowd. They, the crowd doesn't care whether Jesus is guilty or not. They're just enjoying this. It's almost like they've got Pilate in their power and they can see that, that they're just, they, they might win. So like many leaders and judges and juries and, and court officials and police, before and since, that Pilate decides that it's just easier to give in to them. And so an innocent man is condemned and a guilty man goes free. Well, we all know this story pretty well, but what does it mean? If you're like, like me, you'd perhaps like to think that, well, you know, if I'd been there, um, I wouldn't have joined in that. I wouldn't have been one of those calling for him to be crucified. Well, maybe. I suppose the 11 disciples, they didn't join in with that. But then they did nothing at all to help uh, their, their innocent friend. Some uh, seven weeks later, in Peter's speech that he made it on the day of Pentecost, when there were huge crowds of people again in Jerusalem uh, from all the, all the different countries of the Roman Empire, uh, he, Peter was blunt with the people, the, those who were listening. He didn't hold back. He said, you, with the help of lawless men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And pretty much the, the message we get from, from the rest of Scripture is that, that if we'd been there, we would have done the same thing. Now, in the same speech, Peter says that, that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so, as Isaiah said, it, it was God's will for him to suffer and to die. So then, surely we can't be blamed. Um, if that's what God wanted, that's what he wanted to happen, and we helped with it, and so all is good. Well, yes, we can be blamed. Isaiah gives a very similar example um, of when Assyria was coming to invade Israel. And in Isaiah, God says, Woe to you, Assyria, the instrument of my wrath. So God is using Assyria to punish Israel. God is wanting that to happen, to make it happen. But then he condemns Assyria for doing it. Why? Well, because it's what they would have done anyway. That's what they wanted to do. 
when we uh, we look at the events that led to Jesus' crucifixion, we we can see that see that Peter denies even knowing Jesus at all, and the other disciples all ran away. There there were has to be said a few women that stayed at a distance until the end. And there were crowds of people, enough that Pilate was worried that there was going to be a riot, yelling for his death. So our, our uh, well, my defence that we would have done better if we weren't, if we were there, it doesn't actually look all that likely, does it? Maybe, maybe we would. Maybe we wouldn't have been one of those calling for his crucifixion if we knew what we knew, what we know now. But then the people of Jerusalem were like that as well. Um, in the book of Acts, as Peter's talk that I was talking about before, tells us that the, the people of, of, who were gathered in Jerusalem, when they heard Peter speak, um, when they heard him say, you crucified him, they were cut to the heart because they, now they could see what they had done. So you know, with the benefit of hindsight, maybe we wouldn't have, but we didn't have the. They didn't have the benefit of hindsight. And the, the people in Jerusalem then asked, "What can we do? What can we do? We've killed this innocent man. Not only this innocent man, but the Son of God. Nothing, surely, can we do? What could possibly make up for ki killing an innocent man, and not just any man? Nothing we could do. That's for sure." And that's the amazing thing, that the very act of viciously murdering the Son of God was the mechanism for our forgiveness in that same act. Peter said, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom our Lord God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Well, what else can we say about these events of 2,000 years ago from Good Friday? I mean, the day before, it's for the disciples that started with them, actually, I, I imagine they were fairly confident that it would all be okay. I mean, after all, Hadn't everything that Jesus has always done worked out well? He'd regularly made a mess of his enemies, silencing the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders. He'd made them look fools. Why would this day be any different? But before long, their dreams were shattered. Every one of them had deserted Jesus. Their bold claims of sticking with him, with him, him to the end, they had just been tattered. It was like, like a big shaking out of all their self-confidence and pretensions. I mean, only a day before they were they were arguing over who was the greatest. God brings down the proud, and they were proud, but now they were nothing. They had nothing. They were exposed as cowards who deserted their teacher, their closest friend, 
in his hour of need. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So this had to happen. It's kind of like a, a big emptying out of the disciples. These proud men suddenly are empty. Something had to happen to teach them that without Jesus, they, they are nothing. Worse than useless. But now they're emptied out, ready to start again. You know, Matt was talking earlier earlier about the amazing thing that that we are as terrible sinners are forgiven and raped in their children's school too. We can know that for a certainty when we see the the forgiveness that the disciples received. I mean, really, what they did was about as bad as it gets. To, to cowardly run away, to then deny even knowing the Lord Jesus, you know, in the list of sins, it's pretty much it's right up there with about as bad as you can do. And yet after Jesus rose from the dead, these things weren't even, they weren't even mentioned. They were all, all reinstated. They were still Jesus' beloved apostles and they were the ones he used to, to send the gospel out into the world. They just needed to be stripped away of all their, their pride and pretension. My sister, uh, one of my sisters sent me a sermon a guy called Ashley Noel. He's a, among other things, he's an expert on the English Reformation, and I like I like listening to him. But he was saying about how throughout the church's history, whenever God reveals something, Satan always comes up with a, a contrary view, with a lie, and the church has the choice which one to follow. Um, so on, you know, uh, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. This is a new thing God is doing. But Satan says, no, they're drunk. In the, in the Middle Ages, there was a strong belief in the church, in fact, almost a universal belief in the church, that we had to punish ourselves for our sins. So people would go on incredibly long and painful pilgrimages, wa walking miles and miles on their knees so that they were bleeding and, and torn and they would whip themselves because they thought that if they did this enough, then their sins would be paid for. But God's truth says no. Jesus took the punishment for you. He paid the price. So what... Ashley then asked the question, what is it that the church now is believing that isn't from God? And one of the, the things that possibly applies more to the US situation than us, but I think it applies here too, is the way that we look for our comfort and our peace and our happiness 
in things that aren't easy. We look for it in government, in politics, in power. The church has gone through a long period of being relatively powerful in the Western world anyway. And, but now, that has all been stripped away from it. And we've seen it, it's pr probably the American situation is one where we can see it even more obviously, where people actually thought that President Trump was the salvation of the church. You know, now we've got, we've got our man in there and, we'll, and everything will be all right. But suddenly it's taken away. I was reading some figures the other day on the surveys taken in the States. Only, only 10 years ago, more than 50% of Americans in surveys identified as being an evangelical and they went to church pretty much every week. That figure has now dropped below 20% in 10 years. The church is being shaken out. The things of this world that we have tried to depend on are falling apart. You know, we are fortunate in this country to have, have good government. I think at the federal level it, it obviously makes mistakes, but but it's a reasonably good government. But we must not come to depend on that for our peace and for our comfort and for our happiness. When the church starts looking for, for comfort in places that are not the Lord Jesus, then we are going to suffer the same fate. We are going to be shaken out. We are going to go through the things that the apostles went through on that night. Because God will go to any length to make sure that we won't fall away. And falling away can look like something quite nice and comfortable. As we prepare now to, to share in the Lord's Supper, let us remember the events of this, this night when Je on this night and day when Jesus suffered, was tried, condemned unjustly. But remember also that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that the kingdom that we belong to cannot be shaken. And so that should give us confidence that even when we mess up, which we inevitably do, God is going to bring us back and that can be, that can not, sometimes that's not comfortable, it's not, not nice, but it's much better than the alternative. Um, and so that's why the scriptures tell us to rejoice when we suffer because it's actually good for us. So let's um, join in the, uh, the eating of the, the bread and the wine and May it remind us of the events of this, this time that we've read about, but may it especially remind us of what that is. Remember what, the, what it achieved for the disciples. Complete wreck, done everything wrong, within a few days completely forgiven. And it's the same for us. Amen.